Welcome to the Global Elections Podcast. I'm Jason Manchester. There's a constant tension in democratic countries, the push and pull between the executive and the legislature. This fight often happens in the background, behind the battles between parties with different ideologies and national leaders fighting for positions in government. Commons and Prime Minister, Congress and President, Parliament and King, these are all familiar to citizens in both democracies and countries that want to look like democracies. The underlying assumption is that it's a good thing to have one person at the top, and it's a good thing to make sure that they have a check on their power. In the United States and the United Kingdom, this check is that the legislature is the sole authority when it comes to raising taxes. But while it may have started with taxes, very few people see it that way anymore. A legislature is now a representative of the people. With that in mind, we go to Kuwait, a small city-state that sits atop 8% of the world's oil reserves. It may come as a surprise to find that this small country, a hereditary monarchy, is one of the most democratic in the Arab world, although we would not call it a democracy. The country is run by an emir, a monarch, and for the most part, he's there for life. But since 1962, the monarch has been constitutionally checked by the Kuwaiti parliament, a parliament that has the right to question ministers and have them removed from office. On Saturday, November 26th, Kuwait held its 18th parliamentary election since independence. We'll discuss that election, the history of the country, and the fight for democracy within an autocratic system in just a minute. Kuwait is at the northern tip of the Persian Gulf, sandwiched between Saudi Arabia and Iraq, near the mouth of the Shat al-Arab, the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's a small state, and if we're being uncharitable, we could call it a city-state surrounded by 17,000 square kilometers of desert land. Under that desert, and the waters of the Persian Gulf adjacent, is oil. Tiny Kuwait has, depending on the measure, between the fourth and sixth the largest oil reserves in the world. And that gives it international clout that few other microstates can afford. The rulers of Kuwait never easily fit into the stereotypes of a Middle Eastern monarchy that would be familiar to any second cousin of the Saudi royal family. Unlike other oil-producing states, there was a flourishing commercial, social, and political system that pre-existed the discovery of oil. This balance between the ruling family and the commercial classes led the country, after it gained independence from Great Britain, to adopt a constitution that created a parliament with true powers. With the rising price of oil in the 70s, the reliance of the ruling family on the parliament for its legitimacy was undercut. The government of Kuwait is appointed by the emir, not the parliament, and that government does not need to go to the parliament for tax increases. Parliament's powers are more negative. They can summon ministers to be questioned, and if their answers are not adequate, they can have them sacked. This can obviously cause problems for the emir, especially since those ministers are, as often as not, members of the ruling family. In the 1980s, the parliament faced a crisis of legitimacy because the monarchy, the executive, simply did not need to listen to it. The emir unconstitutionally suspended parliament twice, from 1976 to 1981, and again in 1987 to 1990. During that time, the executive was operating without its legislature. Iraqi troops have invaded Kuwait and are reported to have taken over the capital, Kuwait City. Iraq says the Kuwait government has been overthrown. The United States strongly condemns uh, the Iraqi military invasion of Kuwait. Uh, 
And we call for the immediate and unconditional withdrawal of all the Iraqi forces. So following the conclusion of Iraq's long war with Iran, the president of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, chose to press an Iraqi claim on the territory of Kuwait. Iraq had, at the time, a large veteran army, and there was little that the Kuwaiti military could do when Iraq invaded. The royal family fled the country, and Iraq incorporated it, briefly, as the 19th province. While the royal family was in exile, making arrangements for the United States to storm back in and retake the country, prominent opposition members petitioned the American State Department. What was the point, they argued, to liberate a country if the country was an autocracy? The parliament had been frozen out by the ruling family for the last decade. Was that the legacy, they argued, that America wanted to restore? And so there was a compromise. The ruling family would return to power, but with a return to constitutional government. That government has the features that we now see. It has legislative power and can write the laws for the nation. Those laws can be vetoed by the emir, but that veto can be overturned by a two-thirds vote. The Kuwaiti parliament must approve of the government, and that government's the prime minister and his, and it's always a his, cabinet. For example, in 2011, the prime minister was flat out forced out by a showdown with parliament. The new prime minister was brought in by the emir and confirmed by the National Assembly. The National Assembly can also remove the emir himself, as they did in 2006, although that was only done at the request of the ruling family, so it's not at all clear if this power could actually be used if the emir did not want to go. The most important power that the parliament has at this moment is its right to question government ministers and to remove them if they don't like the answers. While this may seem fairly innocuous, it has had an impact on Kuwait's governance. This interpolation of the ministers is carried on national TV and can force the government to either remove corrupt or low-performing ministers, or, far more likely, to dissolve parliament and call fresh elections to see if they can get a more supportive legislative body. So, how does this parliament look? Who are these legislators that ostensibly have this power? Who votes? Well, in Kuwait, political parties are outright banned, but there are coalitions that have formed that function as the equivalent of what we would understand as political parties. These parties are organized along lines very familiar to what we would find elsewhere in Arab world electoral politics. There's a Sunni Islamic bloc, which includes Hadass, a front for the Muslim Brotherhood, as well as a handful of hardline Salafist or ultra-conservative Sunni Islam-based parties. There is also a Shia Islam bloc, which represents the interest of the Shiite minority, which is about 30-40% of the population. On the other end of the spectrum, you have liberals and nationalists, which account for the secular opposition. That said, the largest bloc by far is called the independents, which are not really independent at all. These legislators are the backbone of the regime's support in the National Assembly. They are at times extremely effective, or conveniently ineffective, but they reliably vote with the monarchy, and their raison d'etre is to support the government. The question of who votes might also strike the Western ear as controversial. The first election held after the ruling family was restored was in 1992, Although it was democratic, that democracy extended only to about 14% of the population. The total vote in 1992 was 67,000 out of 81,000 registered voters. Those 81,000 were a fraction of the country's population, which the 1995 census put at 654,000 people. The Kuwaiti population was, at the time, only about a third of the total population of the state, which was little over a million and a half. The rest are expatriates, which might include Westerners, South Asian workers, and stateless Arabs. This franchise in 1992 was limited to men only. 
and then only men of voting age, who could trace their lineage back to a specific event, when the rulers of Kuwait built a wall around Kuwait City in 1920. As an aside, the wall was built to stop raiders under the control of Amir bin Saud, who we would later know as the King of Saudi Arabia. At any rate, since the first election, the franchise was expanded. In 2005, women were granted the right to vote, and the government expanded the right to vote to some stateless peoples by widening the relatives that could be claimed to get citizenship. But there's still a wide gap between the number of registered voters and the total population of country. While in 2013, a low voter turnout of 51% translated into 228,000 out of 440,000 voters, those 440,000 voters were in a population of 1.4 million citizens. And that is less than half of the total 3.7 million residents of Kuwait. To save you from doing the math, that's 16% voter turnout in the citizen population and 6% of the total population. It was frustration at Tunisia's youth unemployment that started it all. When 23-year-old fruit vendor Mohamed Bouazizi set fire to himself last year and died days later, it sparked an unprecedented wave of protests that would transform the region. President Mohammed Hosni Mubarak has decided to waive the office of the President of the Republic. Now Libyans are digging their heels in protest in key cities, and that's despite the violent response from the police as they try to curb the anti-government demonstrations. This is Banyas on the northeastern coast, all calling for the regime to fall. In 2011, the Arab world saw a wave of popular revolts against authoritarian governments. This became known in the Western press as the Arab Spring. Countries in the Arab world which had some type of democratic institutions tended to have an easier time than countries which did not. Popular discontent found its expression through street protests in places like Tunisia and Egypt, but also in Libya and Syria, where the government's violent response led to civil war. These protests in Kuwait were instead channeled through Kuwait's semi-democratic system, leading to protests that unseated the prime minister, a nephew of the emir, on charges of bribery. This led to a chaotic series of elections over the next two years. First, following the sacking of the prime minister, the emir Kuwait called very early elections in February of 2012, which were won by the Islamist opposition. Four months later, the constitutional court ruled that these were invalid, and brought in the previous parliament, the one which had fired the former prime minister. Opposition MPs boycotted that parliament, so the emir called for new elections in December of 2012. While waiting for election day, the emir changed the election law by decree to favor pro-government candidates. And so, the opposition protested and boycotted the elections, which led to pro-government candidates being elected. The opposition launched a legal challenge to the new election law, which failed, but the courts then found a failing with the previous election, so they ordered fresh elections in July of 2013, which the opposition again boycotted. Without a strong opposition, the 2013 Kuwaiti parliament stayed mostly quiet. That is, until recently, when a drop in global oil prices cut the government's revenue significantly, leading to the first budget deficit in more than a decade. The government's response, raising prices and cutting subsidies, was not popular. Parliament again began to call ministers to account for the actions of the government. The emir, in a move that seemed to be designed to avoid another round of messy question-and-answer sessions with the cabinet, dissolved the parliament early again. Fresh elections were held in November of 2016. It's not at all clear why he would have expected a more compliant parliament. The elections of 2013 were boycotted by the opposition, and these elections were certainly not. 
opposition politicians were elected to almost half of the seats in the National Assembly, and analysts put the number of reliable pro-government votes at between 16 to 20 in the 50-seat legislature. It is not clear yet how the government plans on dealing with the newly empowered opposition. However, if the emir tries to overpower the opposition and to dissolve the National Assembly, it will likely lead to more political instability. With oil prices down and the government being forced to cut spending, the executive will need the National Assembly on side. We should be clear about this. Even though we've painted a rosy picture of the powers of the National Assembly in Kuwait, the country is not, in any respect, a democracy. Freedom House gives it a score of 5 for both political rights and civil liberties, which put it on par with Iraq and Venezuela. The executive branch routinely harasses opposition figures. Recently, a liberal opposition figure was jailed simply for criticizing the government of Saudi Arabia. They have also developed a new tool for authoritarianism, using the citizenship law to revoke citizenship of opposition figures and critical journalists, effectively exiling their opponents. We shouldn't be naive. Kuwait is an authoritarian monarchy with some political freedoms and civil rights. We do believe, however, that democracy has a machinery that self-reinforces. If a people are given some democratic freedoms, they will demand more. If elites aren't willing to use violence to suppress those demands for more freedoms, then eventually a state will become free and democratic. Kuwait is a test case for this theory. If in 20 years you feel that we were wrong about this, you can email us. We look forward to hearing from you. The Global Elections Podcast is produced at the James Street Studios in Ottawa, Ontario by me, Jason Manchester. Thanks this week to David Smith and Dr. Aran Keshavarzian. You can find the Global Elections Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher, or wherever. You can get a hold of us on Twitter at, at @jkmanchester. You can follow us at facebook.com backslash global elections podcast. You should rate us in iTunes or Stitcher if you like the show. It helps people find us and helps us out somehow. My name is Jason Manchester. Thanks for listening.